We're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. And the title of the message is Peace in the New Year. While y'all are turning there, let's go before the Lord and just ask him to bless our study. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, as we made the choice that the first Sunday of the year we're going to be in church, we're going to be here and we're opening up our Bibles. Lord, we want to hear from you. And we are asking you to help us to set set the uh, pace for the year, Father God. We're asking you to help recalibrate us, help refocus us, Father God, on things that matter, on things that are of you. Bless our time in this study, Father God. May we learn in this new year to depend more and more upon you as we look for that peace that we desire to have. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I alluded to earlier when I first said good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel Redeeming Grace, we have entered into a new year. We are no longer in 2021. We have entered into 2022. You cannot take it back. You cannot go back. That's just the way time works. Forward in one direction only. And so one of the things about having a day that marks the end of the old and the beginning of the new is it provides that clearly defined line for a new beginning, for a new start. From this point on, we're going forward. It's a point of calibration and reorientation. You evaluate the trajectory, where you're headed, and does it line up with the goals and the dreams and the desire to achieve? That's why most people on New Year's Day start their resolutions. They take that time and they're like, wait a minute, I said before I was going to do this and I haven't even reached that yet. Something that I like to do every new year, something that I heard many years ago on K-Love, is I take a one word to focus for the year ahead. It's, it's easy to get bogged down. If you make a list of 100 resolutions, you're like, well, the first one that you fail at, well, there goes that list. Just throw it out. But I found that if I stick with one word and I just remember that word throughout the year, I can, I can add to that. In past years, uh, for example, I focused on the word humility, the word love, the word faith, and I know all of you are going to say, yeah, but you have none of those things. That's okay. It's still something I'm focusing on. I'm still asking the Lord to help build it. This year, the word I want to embrace is peace. Having talked with many people, having gone through many things throughout this year, having experienced so many things, it, I want that peace that is promised in Scripture. And to be clear, it's not the only focus that I'm going to have to the detriment of everything else, but the main focus will be peace. I mean, if you look over the past couple of years, what you've seen is there's a continues to be a growing division on just about everything in life, isn't there? In the nation, there's a division in politics. In families, there's a division between people. The saddest thing that I've seen is that there is division even within the church, the bride of Christ herself. There's many different things that cause that uprising, that division, and, 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 and those things that we get so polarized on and then as you look over the past couple of years in the pandemic that we've been in, there's been many people that have experienced storms of loss. There's been many tragedies that have happened. There's been much upset over who's giving out the right information, who do we listen to, what do we do, where do we go from here? And then the unprecedented amount of just, I feel like it's manufactured fear. There are things that we need to be fearful and cautious in, but I feel like there's been this overwhelming manufacturing of a fear. And there's a, a many different things. That I'm not just talking about with the you know, virus or whatnot, but there's just a fear of all sorts of things. And for some, it's overwhelming. There's the fear of death. There's fear that comes when families are so divided, there's estrangement. The conflict is so raw that it creates that fear of not even knowing if it's going to be able to be resolved. There's the fear that comes in uncertainty. And all of these things occurring, one after the other, it's just like wave after wave after wave hitting. 
as the church, as those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are to be the beacon of hope and light in this world. And our light shines brightest when we look different from the world. And so it's in these times of trouble that we are the ones who are able to shine bright for all to see. Not because we don't have troubles, not because we don't experience loss, not because we don't have conflict, but because we have access to a peace within trouble that the world has no idea about. Sometimes, however, we surrender that peace. And I want to focus on having and maintaining that promised peace. So when the promised difficulties, yes, the difficulties in life are promised. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So when the difficulties of life come, instead of getting caught up reacting and trying to resolve and bring back our version of peace and trying to return to what we consider normal, I want to rest in the peace from God himself to find that new normal that he's desiring us to walk in. That peace through troubled times. So I'm asking us to turn to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. And I want us to read, and, and Paul's going to tell us what's needed for peace in the new year that not only is for the new year, but every day after that. And so starting in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. I don't know what happened there. Now I'm in the songs. There we go. There we are. I, don't, I think the button got stuck. That's crazy. All right. So Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about every, anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul has some instructions. That peace that I talked about, do we want that peace? Do we want that peace that says, even in troubled times, I'm okay? Even in times of extreme hurt, pain, and loss, and, and when the world just seems upside down, we're okay. I want that peace. And so Paul says that there's certain things that have to happen. Number one, we have to have the right attitude. You probably heard it said before that attitude is everything. Attitude shapes everything for us. And Paul is saying that's no difference for us as Christians. We have to have the right attitude towards things. And so that's why in verses four through six, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. And don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If we want peace, we have to have the right attitude. And there's four attitudes that we need to have as Christians. The first attitude we need is rejoicing. We should be rejoicing. As Christians, those in Christ Jesus, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have been saved from the wrath of God. The Bible teaches that eternity is written on the hearts of everyone, and it is appointed man to die once and then the judgment. And everybody fears death mainly because in our hearts we know that there is a time where we answer for our life. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, I want you to know he's answered it for you. 
so that you stand before God justified and righteous. We should be rejoicing in the Lord. And Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Do it always. And I want you to know that, yes, it can always be done. We can always rejoice in the Lord. In fact, it's so vital that we do that that he repeats it. He says, again, I say, rejoice. And now rejoicing, it means to be glad in, and it's repeated for emphasis in case someone might say, but what's going on with me is not worth rejoicing. I can't rejoice right now. Rejoicing should be our default attitude. We should be known for our joy and not for our grumbling or our complaining. Now, I'm going to temper that. I'm not saying that, you know, hey, I just got in a really bad car accident and I just lost the ability to walk. Yay! Go light! But it's saying that despite that, I am still a child of God and so I can rejoice. Despite that, I still have the love of Christ. He hasn't left me. Because, let's face it, there's times when we don't feel like rejoicing, right? There's that extreme example I gave, but there's other things that can happen in life. Where maybe we just wake up one day and we're like, you know what? I just don't feel like rejoicing. There's times where the trials and the pressures of life make it impossible to be happy. But that's exactly why Paul didn't say, be happy always. And again, I say, be happy because here's the thing about happiness. It depends on what happens. It depends on circumstances. Circumstances of life change quickly, and therefore we can't always be happy, right? We don't always have to put on the smiley, happy face, but we can still rejoice despite that. We can always rejoice in the Lord, and it's because of this. The Lord never changes. And our position with him will never change. If you are here this morning, if you're listening this morning, and you are in Christ Jesus, your position as a child of God, forgiven in Christ Jesus, will never change. And so therefore, you can rejoice always in the Lord. Doesn't matter how dark the circumstances of life, you can always rejoice in the Lord. And Paul's leaving no room for a loophole. There's no except for when this happens or only when this happens, then you don't have. He says rejoice in the Lord always. You can do it and you have to do it. Despite difficulty or the pain or the injustice, right? You can be like, well, how do I, how do, I do this when I'm being treated so unfairly? I want you to know that Paul wrote the book of Philippians while in jail. And he was in jail for being Christian. So if there's anybody who could say, you know what, injustice is terrible and you don't have to always be rejoicing and therefore I'm, but Paul in prison said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, and this isn't the five-star hotel prisons that we have now, not to say that it's anywhere to go and visit, but I mean, compared to the ancient prisons, that's a five-star four seasons hotel that what we have today in this day and age. But Paul still said, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice and there's a similar attitude that comes out of the Old Testament as well, Nehemiah. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. You can find your joy in the Lord, not in your circumstance. Joy is to be the basic and constant attitude of the Christian life. That should be our default position. And it's because of what Nehemiah said. In Nehemiah 8.10, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, Send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, when you can rejoice in the Lord, that becomes your strength in life. You're no longer focused on what's happening in this life. Because in the grand scheme of eternity, this life is a blip. We will be in eternity with the Lord forever, the one who saved us, the one who has, has kept us. Everything that happens in this life it's all temporary. The second attitude we should have is an attitude of graciousness. We should be the most gracious people that anyone would encounter because we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. And graciousness is the Greek word, epikes. Spelling test on that. Remember, it's Greek, so there's different uh, spelling. No, I'm just kidding. But it comes from two words, epi and ikos. 
Epi is used intensively, and eikos means reasonable. And so what you get when you put those two together is it talks about a sweet reasonableness. We should be reasonable people, right? Sweet, reasonable people. And it's speaking of the spirit of gentleness and even of forbearance. What it's saying is don't have a spirit looking for retaliation. Don't be looking to make things right for yourself. Looking out to make sure that everything is is put right with you, that nobody does you wrong. Paul is saying, do not withhold your graciousness from anyone, but instead let it be known to everyone and personally by everyone. Because our joy in circumstances, it may not always be seen, right? Because I said we're not always going to have a happy face. But our reaction to and with others will always be noticed and felt. How we handle when someone comes up to us and we're just in a bad mood and we turn around and snap at them, if that's the first time you ever met that person, that's all they're going to know you by. But on the flip side, if they already know you and that's out of character for you, they're going to be like, gosh, what a jerk. I can't believe he did that. Or they did that. Spurgeon said it this way, joy in the Lord, specifically, especially for those who rejoice in the Lord, they're not apt to give offense nor take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things. They're not easily distracted by little troubles, which naturally arise from imperfect creatures as we are. Therefore, the joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. You want to be gracious? You have to have that attitude of rejoicing. Joy in the Lord allows us to remain gracious to others. Graciousness is a willingness to give up our own way. And the difficulty lies not with understanding graciousness. The difficulty is applying it to all people. Because there's somewhere we're like, yeah, but they should know better. Yeah, but they do that on purpose. They meant to do that. You know what I found when I get offended because somebody spoke harshly to me or whatnot, unless I'm like actively involved in some like large argument and whatnot, but usually when I take offense, when somebody said something to me, it was a careless word that they said. They didn't mean it that way. If I have the strength to go and say, hey, did you mean it this way? Usually they'll be like, oh no, I totally didn't mean it that way. But most of us aren't willing to be vulnerable like that because we don't want to hear that they actually meant it that way. We'd rather just believe they meant it that way. But let our graciousness be known to all men. And James, in the epistle that he wrote, said it this way. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above, when we we go to the Lord for wisdom, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, and unwavering without pretense. We need to be gentle with people. Especially those of us that are in the church, we are the example of Christ. And Christ said that they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. He didn't say by the fact that you make sure that you're always right and everything, that you always exact revenge, that you always make everybody pay for every little thing that they do. He said by the love that you show one another. And then Peter, one of the first disciples for the Lord, tells us in his epistle, love covers a multitude of sin. The third attitude that we need to have is we need to have an expectant attitude. Not expecting people to be perfect, not expecting ourselves to be perfect, but expectant for the Lord. That's why Paul says in four words, he said, for the Lord is near. Expect the Lord. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, um, but the Lord is coming back. And understanding that and being expectant to that shapes our attitude as well. Because how do, kids, how are we when our parents are gone, right? When they're nowhere near, whatever, but when our parents are coming back, oh no, I better be, like, I'm, be, I'm being good, right? Right? You're going to tell my mom and dad that I'm being good? 
how are we when somebody else is, 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 is like, when we know the boss is coming to work, all of a sudden our workspace is a little bit cleaner. We're a little bit more focused on our work. We're, last year was, uh, I'm sorry, 2020 was the year where everybody got to telecommute. Just about everybody. And we know what happens with tele- uh, things get a little bit lazy. They make a lot of funny commercials about it. I've seen, I just saw one recently where the guy's in a business suit and it's a Folgers commercial and he's sitting there at the table and the camera's pointed down just a little bit too low and all he, he only put on boxer shorts. And it says, everybody can see your thighs. And that's why the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. If we know that people can see that, that, that the boss is there, that they're, we are different, are we not? We should be expecting that Jesus is coming. Be ready for him. That he would find us working. That he would find us being his disciples. And when he says that the Lord is near, there's, there's two ways in our mind and our attitude that we can know that the Lord is near. First, understand this. The Lord himself dwells in you. If you are in Christ Jesus, the Lord dwells in you. And second, he's coming again. He promised that. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, he says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you? Did you understand, those in Christ, did you know that God lives in you? So everything that you do in your life, God's there with you. He says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And Christ himself, he promised. In the book of Revelation, it's all about what's going to happen at the end when Christ is coming back. And in Revelation 22, 12, Jesus ends the book of Revelation saying, look, I am coming soon And my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. Understand that the Lord is coming soon and he's bringing his reward with him. We, and it's imminent. In 1 Thessalonians, what we have here is we have a description of what will happen at what's called the rapture. It says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You see, the Lord, at that time, he'll appear in the clouds, call up his church, take his church out of the world so that God's judgment can be poured out on a world that has rejected his son. And Paul describes it again in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep or we will not all die, but we will all be changed. And this is how fast it'll happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at that last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Christ is coming back and he will change us in the moment, in the twinkling. It's imminent and it will be immediate. So we have to have that attitude of expectancy. That shapes the way that we live. And finally, we need to have an attitude of faith. An attitude of faith. Right attitude includes an attitude of faith. And I want to put this out there. Faith is not blindly hoping everything comes out right. Well, I just have faith. I don't have to do this because by faith it's just going to happen. And I don't have to be this because by faith it'll happen. Now, faith is trust and dependency upon God and his word and his promises. But understanding that God has asked us to be certain ways, to do certain things, and that he would act and react within those things. Paul says those with an attitude of faith should not worry about anything. That's where faith comes in. We don't have to worry about anything because raise your hand, if you have ever been able to control one moment of your own life. We are mostly reacting to what already occurs within our life out of our control. Even in the most mundane, typical things. 
how many times have you seen people that have had some freak accident where all of a sudden they're walking around, their legs broke, and they're like, well, one moment I was doing what I planned on doing, the next moment my leg was broke. You think they planned that? You think they said, you know what, today's a good day. I'll just break my fibula. Nobody says that. Now, worry is also translated in some versions as anxious. That's a common ailment that affects many, not only in America, but just worldwide. And I think a lot of it has to do with such busyness that we've crammed into our lives. We've made ourselves so busy that we're anxious about everything. And, and we understand that we have control over nothing. So when we have a packed schedule and we can't make our schedule work out the way we want to, we make ourselves into neurotic people over this anxiety that we have. And then it starts um, going into different areas that we can't control. We get anxious because we can't control being sick. We get anxious because we can't control that we fell asleep. We, all these different things that we have no control over. Joy and graciousness accompanied by an awareness of Christ's imminent return can and should dispel anxiety. Now, this isn't a call to carefree living, all right? Care and concern in life is one thing, and we can have care and concern and take care of things and, and whatnot, but an attitude of worry or anxiousness is another. Paul and Timothy are recorded throughout Scripture as having an attitude of care and concern. Paul says, not to mention other things, there is my, the daily pressure on me, concern for all the churches. It's a good thing to be concerned for those in the church. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I have no one else like-minded like you, Timothy, who will genuinely care about your interests. We have all these different things that we can have genuine care and concern over. We don't have to worry about it. Like, it's, it's not on us if it doesn't work out the way that it should, but we can have care and concern, and we can do everything we can to make sure that, you know, that they know that they're loved, that they know that the Lord is you know, provided salvation, that the Lord has provided all the things to be mature and to grow up in Christ. And Jesus even spoke off, casting off our worry and anxiety as well. Because when we allow it to, anxiety and worry eliminates our trust in God. In Matthew 6, 25, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, because isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And this is the big question. Can any of you add one moment to your life span by worrying? But we spend a lot of time worrying about public health about our health, about everything going on. And none of that worry added life. In fact, it's, it's actually believed that if you worry too much, worry takes away time in your life. Now, it sounds great, but is it true? Can we be free from worrying and be anxious for nothing? And I say it is possible to worry and to be anxious for nothing as long as we utilize the privilege we've been given and that's to pray. Because when we pray, as a command from Paul where he says, don't worry about anything, and he makes it a commandment. He didn't say, see if you can just stop worrying. See if this helps you with your worry. He says, no, don't worry. Instead, in everything, to the Lord in prayer. Because when we go to God in prayer, what we're saying is, I trust you, God. I'm bringing what I'm concerned about to you and how it works out is based on what you want because the Bible teaches that God is good and that for those who love God, he works all things together for their good, everything in your life. You might say, well, I didn't like this thing that happened. How can that be for my good? I may not be able to answer that, but I do know a picture that I can tell you that it looks like. It's like when you look at the back of a tapestry now on the back of it, all you see is a bunch of mangled mess of different threads and whatnot, and it has no logical reason or rhyme for it. But when you turn it the other way, that's the beautiful picture. God's working in the back to make the beautiful picture on the front. So when you look at the back, you're going to be like, I don't, what are you doing? I have no idea. 
The other thing to consider is this. David Guzik says, undue care is an intrusion into an arena that belongs to God alone. It makes us the father of the household instead of being the child. Parents, how many of us are okay with our kids worrying about adult things? How many of us want our kids worrying about the bills being paid? Do we share with them, hey, this bill needs to be paid and um, you need to go get a job to go do it? How many of us share with a, uh, a um, child that says, we, we need medical insurance, you need to go and provide that for us? None of us would say that. But we do that when we don't go to God in prayer and instead we're like, well, I'm going to worry about all these things that are important to me. Paul says instead of worry in everything through prayer, because there's nothing in your life that is off limits or of no concern to God. So present and make your request to God through prayer and through petition or supplication. Prayer is the broad spectrum of communication with God in everything we communicate with and to God. Do you know that there's never a time where you're going to be like, God, here's what's going on. And he's going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on, hold on. I'm sure most of you already know this. You've come up to talk to me after service or for prayer or something, and I have somebody else that's there. Like, I'm limited. I can only handle one person at a time. God is unlimited in that. He never has a busy signal. He can hear everybody at all times who's ever... You never have to wait to talk to God the Father. And so we can, we're, we're called and we're told that we have that privilege to go before God and to petition and directly ask requests to God of the universe. A startling thing is this. Many of our prayers that we blame God for not answering go unanswered because we don't ask God for anything. We're entreated here to let our request be presented to God. James 4 says, You desire and do not have, and you do not have because you do not ask. Now, it is true. God already knows our request before we go to him. Okay, We're not telling him anything new in information. But what God has ordained is that he will wait for our participation in prayer before he acts through the prayers of his people. He's ordained it that way. That's why he gave us the privilege of prayer. And then we go before God with privilege, with that privilege in prayer, but we go before him with thanksgiving, right? We don't go, God, since you didn't give me that last thing I prayed for, you owe me this one. God, since um, it's been a while since I prayed to you, but I really need this and you just got to do it for me. And if you don't do it this way, then that's it, I'm out of here. With, with thanksgiving, with thankfulness, we come before him. And a summary of this verse of Philippians 4, 8 is this. Anxious in nothing, prayerful in everything, thankful for anything. If we go to God demanding what we deserve, it's completely the wrong attitude to have because all we deserve is judgment, damnation, and eternity in hell. But our God is gracious in that he sent instead his one and only son to die on the cross so that through him we can be forgiven for our sins and escape that eternal torment and punishment and instead stand before him justified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we have the right attitude and then we have to come to right thinking. The way that we think about things. Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. And so Paul, in closing, gives instructions for directing our thought life to be right thinking. He says, dwell on whatever. There's no limit here. He says, dwell on whatever, and then he gives a list on what we can dwell on. He says, dwell on whatever is true. That means focus on the genuine and the truthful. In contrast, you ignore and discard anything that is false, anything that's a lie. Just throw it out. Don't, don't focus on it. Whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of respect or is dignified. It says whatever is just, 
whatever is righteous, whatever conforms to God's standards, focus on that. Whatever is pure. We, we need to practice this a lot more as children of God. We need to focus on whatever is pure. This is whatever is innocent, whatever is wholesome, but also this, whatever is unmixed. It can be mostly pure and still be unpure because it's mixed. So we are to focus on clean things, clean thoughts, clean words, clean deeds, clean whatever it is. It has to be clean and pleasing to God. And then he says, focus on whatever is lovely, whatever is pleasing, whatever is agreeable. There's another word, probably don't use it as often as we should, whatever is winsome and promote peace over conflict. Whatever is commendable, that's whatever is positive, whatever is constructive. If it has any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy in that. Paul says, for right thinking, dwell on all these things. And to dwell means to count, credit, consider. This is deep thinking. This is long-lasting concentration. This is meditation. Dwell only on what fits in that list. If it doesn't fit in that list, we should not be dwelling on it at all. But in order for that to happen, we have to understand that there's a, a war, there's a fight for our minds. There's a fight for our thoughts. And we have to take prisoners. In fact, to have right thinking, we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Here's the truth of the matter. We are responsible for our thoughts. Not every little thought that comes into our mind, but we're responsible for what happens to our thoughts. Do we focus on it or do we throw it out and say, you know what, that's a terrible thought. It shouldn't, I, I don't need to focus on that. The Bible everywhere teaches that we have control over the thoughts that start flooding our mind. It makes us powerless to adopt a defeatist attitude saying, you know what, I can't help it. That's just the way my mind works. The truth is, is we can help it. We're expected to help it. Because we control what our mind and our heart's diet is. We control what we take in and what we consume. And it's important that we get control of this because much of the Christian life comes down to the mind. In fact, when Jesus raised the standard for what sin was, he included thought life. Remember he said, I, I tell you, you've heard it said that anyone who commits murder, he says, but I tell you this, anyone who has even thought angry thoughts or is angry or has or thought it is guilty of it. You've heard it said that adultery is a sin. He says, I tell you, anybody who looks after somebody else with lust, and the thought is in the mind, and it's just the same. The only thing that we can do, as Paul said in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You have to renew your mind. When we come to Christ, our mind is corrupt because we've been in the world. We have to renew our mind by focusing on Christ. Every proud thing raised up against the knowledge of God, we must take thought captive to obey Christ. Because that brings us to the spiritual truth, which is this. What we choose to dwell on matters. If you look at that list closely and you look at all those attributes, all those qualities, everything in that list describes Jesus Christ. Let your mind be about Jesus Christ. Then Paul calls us to right action. We want peace in the new year, we want peace in our life. We have right attitude, right thinking, and right action. Paul in verse 9, he says, Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. Right attitude and right thinking leads to right action. But we still have to choose to act. Paul says, Do what you've learned and received and heard from me 
and have also seen in me. Paul's not giving us a list of high ideals that he himself doesn't ever do. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. But Paul has also has always said, not only do what I say, but also look to the things that I do, because what I do and what I say, they line up. What you see me practice, Paul exemplified them in him all the time. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do these things, practice them as a habit. And again, I go to James' epistle because he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. It is not good enough to hear God's word. If you do nothing with God's word, it's of no help, no use, and no change in your life. It's when you heed God's word that it has power in your life that God has ordained for it to have. And that brings us the promised peace. Right attitude, right thinking, and right action brings us the promised peace. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And in verse 9, it closes saying, The God of peace will be with you. The promised peace first promise the peace of God. Irene in the Greek, shalom in the Old Testament. There's three aspects of peace that relate to God. One is peace from God. That's used as the introduction in most of Paul's letters. It reminds us that peace is a gift that comes from God. Paul also talks about peace with God. This is what we have in Christ Jesus when our sins are forgiven. We have peace with God. We are no longer under the wrath of God, but we are at peace with God because we've been declared righteous in Christ Jesus. And then what we find here is the peace of God, and that relates to an inner tranquility of a believer's close walk with God. And this peace guards the heart and mind of those in Christ Jesus. It's beyond the world's ability to comprehend, and even for believers who have it, it's completely unexplainable. You can't tell someone, hey, I have the peace of God, and they're like, what do you mean? I just have it. I don't know how to explain it because it surpasses all understanding. It's a lack of anxiety and tragedy and adverse circumstances. It's not peace from those things. It's peace in such things. That peace guards, another word that it translates as garrisons. It's soldiers assigned to watch over a certain area. It garrisons, it guards our hearts and minds so that we don't go, you know what, maybe God doesn't love me. And we have the peace of God so that we know that he is with us. He does love us. He has not left us. And then we're promised that we have the God of peace. I was going to do a nice little thing because it's a homonym, right? Peace. I was going to be like, we don't just get a peace of God, but we get the God of peace. And he promises to be with you in all things. Not only do you get the peace of God to guard you, but you get the presence of God of peace that sustains you, that carries you, that supports you, that comforts you. God will walk through the fires with you. In Daniel... There were three boys that were in captivity in Daniel and they refused to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And for that, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. God didn't rescue them from being thrown in the fiery furnace. But when King Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, how many people do we throw in there? He said, three. Well, why do I see four? And if you ever watch Veggie Tales, then that's when the little onion guy goes, and one of them is real shiny. <laughs> and it says that they were protected from the fire. It didn't burn them. They didn't even smell of smoke because God was with them in the furnace. And the God of peace will be with you in the furnace of life a right attitude. We have to have joy. This world is a world of woe. Be defiant with the word, nevertheless, even though I'm filled with woe, nevertheless, because of what Christ has done, I will rejoice. And again, I will rejoice. 
For to have peace, we have to rejoice in the Lord always. Gentleness. That word graciousness that we went over can also be translated gentleness. William Tyndale translates the word graciousness to softness. Let your softness be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Understand that. Rejoice in that. Be gentle in that. Have faith in God. Put all your cares upon God. You know the one person who can handle it all? Because I'm going to share a little story. My wife and I get in conflict because when we share our cares with one another, we're not, we're not apt and able to handle all of it. And so we start trying to solve each other's problems. And sometimes we just need somebody who hears our problems and God can handle all of our problems. It says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And it declares your dependence upon him then we have to have right thinking. We have to renew our mind. We have to heed the psalmist and apply ex the extreme measures that Christ spoke of. In Psalm 101, it says, I will pay attention to the way of integrity. When will you come to me? I will live with a heart of integrity in my house and I will not let anything worthless guide me. I hate the practice of transgression and it will not cling to me. We have to live with that heart, with that integrity, that mind. And Jesus said this, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of these body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. We have to renew ourselves by casting out the things that are damaging. Meditate on God's word. Hide God's word in your heart. The psalmist also writes, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. You have to set time aside for that though. Time in the morning Maybe it's the early morning that works best for you. If early morning doesn't work for you, most people I know, that I've talked with, they don't do a quiet time because they're like, well, I can't get up early in the morning. Well, what about finding some time at lunchtime? What about finding some time in the late afternoon? What about late at night? Find a time and just be consistent in it and spend time with the Lord Jesus. Listen to the Spirit. Dwell on His Word. And then have the right actions, right living, right deeds, that follow the right thinking and the right attitudes. Because when you think a thought long enough and you dwell on it long enough, eventually it becomes an action. And the peace of God cannot be understood, cannot be explained. The only way to understand, the, the to know the peace of God is to experience it. And that's what people in the world will see when trouble comes and hits our lives and we have such peace about it, they're like, wait a minute. I don't have peace. How do you have peace? That would totally destroy me. How are you able to walk through that? And that's when you get to say, because I know the God of peace. We get that chance to share. We're going to hand out the communion elements right now, and it's a reminder that we do have peace with God. It's a reminder that we have that. I'm going to ask the guys to come up and help me um, hand out the communion here. As we take the communion, if you are here and you do not know the peace of God, we're told not to take the communion because it would be taken in an unworthy manner. But rather than skip out on that, I want you to know that you can experience the peace of God right now and then this communion can be a celebration to know that peace in your life. We're told and we're commanded that if we turn and we come to Christ and we ask for forgiveness of our sins, he will forgive us of all of our sins and we will be justified in Christ Jesus and we will stand before God at peace with God filled with the peace of God in this life, knowing that we are now his. The God of peace is the companion of those who are holy in Christ Jesus and practice these right actions, these right thinking, this right attitude.
We're told that if we call upon Jesus for salvation, that none of us will be turned away. That everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. And so if you have turned and, and you've called upon the name of Christ, I, I, I can genuinely say to you that you are a child of God because it says as many as received him to them he gave the right to be called children of God and therefore now as children of God we can all sit at the table and we can take of the Lord's Supper and so the Lord's Supper was instituted in the early church by Paul after the example of Christ and so Paul relates back to what Christ did he said for I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's partake. This is one way that we can live, reminding us of the expectancy that the Lord is coming again. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to apply this word that we might experience the peace, that we might regain. Maybe we set that peace down, that we might pick it up again and regain that peace in our troubled times, Father God. That we would know the God of peace and that we would have the peace of God that you promise us. In Jesus' name, amen.